listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Bob. How are you? I'm getting by. How are you? That's about the same. <laughs> Sounds well, like we're going to have a good discussion. I think we may be on the same wavelength. Um, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright of the Non-Zero uh, Newsletter, and this is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Jeffrey Sachs, economist at Columbia, director of Columbia's uh, Center for Sustainable Development. You've been kind of prominently active in world affairs for some time now, been a uh, special advisor to three secretaries general of the UN, including the current one. And you've just been active in a lot of ways in issues of international governance, global governance. Um, now, the, the last time we talked, and maybe the only time we talked, was in 1989, I think. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, yes. Believe it or not, you were alive then, Jeff. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I kind of remember that, those uh, years. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to try to sharpen that memory. Uh, let, let's go down memory lane. So I was uh, I was acting editor of the New Republic. I was editing a piece of yours. In those days, more editorial collaboration was done by phone. Um, and that was a time of kind of dawning hope. The Cold War was drawing to a close. Uh, there was, you know, people, uh, including me, uh, hoped that we might be entering a whole new era where the rule of law would govern world affairs more than it had. You might not need to have wars. Uh, for example, nations would cooperate uh, on common problems. You know, some of that is, you know, there is cooperation. It's, it's not all bad. At the same time, I think at this moment, with us sinking into apparently a new Cold War and a very hot war going on with Russia and various other issues, um, I personally am disappointed. Uh, you know, uh, would you do you share do you share my sense that the world missed an opportunity? Oh, absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, I, 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 you know, I, I blame the United States uh, government and leadership and political system for a lot of that. A lot of Americans don't like me saying that, but that has been my biggest disappointment. Uh, over 30 years, which is uh, a wealthy, powerful, capable country, uh, just did not rise to the occasion. And I saw it then. And for me, the disappointments mounted from then. Uh, and um, I'm really uh, unhappy about U.S. <laughs> foreign policy now, uh, but that has been a growing feeling over more than 30 years. You know, it's and it's strange. Of course, the U.S. is just one of uh, 193 countries, and we're just 4.1% uh, of the world's population. So people may say, well, isn't it really a little ridiculous to put so much weight on the U.S. And I think there are two answers to that. One is, well, I'm an American, so I judge our own situation first, no doubt. But second, the U.S. believes itself to be, describes itself to be, and in some ways is a special country in the mix in that it's very powerful, very rich, very influential, and it's in that 
particular sense that I think we should have just done a lot better than we've done. And um, why I feel down on the U.S. approach to the world and even regard it as, as very dangerous. Um, yeah, I think for people who weren't around then, it may be hard to imagine how much influence and power the U.S. had. And I've always thought that at that point, we had great norm-shaping power. Um, I, I've made the case to people, and they're almost always skeptical, that if we had really made it our mission to establish the norm of complying with international law by like talking about it and complying with it ourselves, I think that could have been uh, had a real influence on on the direction of events. Of course, it would have meant that we did a whole lot of things differently than we, than we've done. Does that seem crazy to you? Well, I've always thought that there were uh, two essential uh, parts to a decent world. One is that the rich countries would be uh, generous. Uh, and help the poor countries to get out of their poverty. Uh, and in no small part, because uh, in, in some broad sense, the rich countries had imperialized or colonized uh, much of the low-income world. And so there was a, not just a, a, a sense of uh, responsibility of, of the rich to the poor, but a sense of historical accountability as well. The second uh, thing that um, I thought was, and I believe to be crucial, is that we get along with each other through uh, dialogue and diplomacy rather than war. So uh, those are the two dimensions that I think are needed to shape a decent world. The world's divided between the rich and the poor, and the world is just armed to the teeth. Uh, in each other's face and with a hot war now raging uh, in Ukraine. So my experience is the United States was anything but generous with the rest of the world. Uh, it, it was so stingy in my experience, it has shocked me and dismayed me for more than 30 years, and it's gotten worse over time. And the United States is really militaristic in its foreign policy approach. Uh, we talk about all those terrible things other countries do. Of course, Russia's top of list right now. But we seem not to be able to grapple with our own relentless militarism. I'm now 68. The U.S. has been at war virtually every year of my life, and most of it in wasteful wars of choice that were incredibly destructive and uh, incredibly misguided. So, yes, I'm not only frustrated, I'm rather alarmed right now because we speak casually about this uh, terrible set of events in Ukraine without appreciating how close we are to the nuclear threshold. And that's no panic or no craziness. That's actually reality that you learn in being involved in international diplomacy over decades. There just are a lot of reckless, stupid people around that could do 
profound damage to the world. And so anytime there's a hot war raging and this kind of venomous, uh, venomous talk vis-a-vis Russia without any dialogue going on, it's very frightening. What would you say was the first kind of big mistake? I mean, if you just had to, when, when did you think, Think, first thing, things were going awry in, in, a, in a fundamental way in terms of U.S. foreign policy. Oh, I know it. It was uh, November 1991, and I remember the moment also uh, but because I was in a very unusual circumstance. I was the leading external advisor to the Solidarity Movement and to Poland's first post-communist government. I, I had more of a front row seat than you can even imagine because I was in, involved in the, the core issues of democratization, of the end of the Cold War, and of economic strategy. And I had an incredible experience. We don't have time to go into it at length, but for some time, I'd make a recommendation uh, about what to do, and within hours, the U.S. government adopted it. I thought, gee, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, I created a stabilization fund for Poland in September 1989, typed out the proposal in the morning, and by the evening, the White House confirmed a billion dollars to help stabilize the Polish currency. So, I thought, gee, this is a role. The U.S. is being constructive. It's being, uh, it's being forthcoming. The program that I recommended for Poland stabilized the country. It restored economic growth to a collapsed economy within 18 months, enabled Poland to have its best 30 years of growth in its history and to join the European Union and so on. Okay, that was good. Then in 1990 and 91, the Soviet Union, President Gorbachev's economic team asked me for some advice based on what was happening in Poland. And I gave it and I worked on a project to help provide financial backing to Gorbachev's reforms in the spring of 1991. And they were flatly rejected by the White House. And I thought, my God, this is stupid. Here you have the once in a, it's not even once in a generation, once in a century uh, opportunity for peaceful transformation. And you, you tell Gorbachev, sorry, not a dime. Okay. Then when Gorbachev went home empty-handed from a G7 summit, he faced a putsch. Uh, he was... Uh, 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 kidnapped, in effect, uh, and he spiraled down in power, and it was the end of the Soviet Union, in effect. Then came Yeltsin as president of Russia and what would soon be an independent Russia, and his economic team called me and said, please hurry to Moscow to the dacha to discuss economic strategy, and I did, and I saw that Russia was without foreign exchange reserves. It was facing a fulminant economic crisis. It was like having, you know, a, a heart attack on the table and, or you needed defibrillator or some absolutely urgent 
uh, response. And the G7 countries, led by the United States, the most powerful seven countries of the world, which at that time controlled about 50% of world output, sent the finance deputies, so-called basically the number twos of the treasuries and finance ministries, to Moscow in November 1991. And I said to the acting prime minister, you need a debt standstill. That means you need to tell them, look, don't make me pay debt right now. I have no reserves. I can't go broke. I can't afford a hyperinflation. And I thought, this is just about the most transformative moment in modern history. Of course, they're going to accept this. They're going to say, what can we do for you? This is so crucial. And I remember Yegor Gaidar walking out and who was that? Face who was, from who was, who was, Yegor Gaidar was the acting deputy premier and the chief economic okay. uh, advisor of Yeltsin. And after the briefing, he went into the room with the G7 deputies and the meeting ended and he walked out ashen faced. I said, what happened? He said, they rejected every proposal flat out. They said, you continue to pay every penny due or we turn the food aid on the high seas around and, you know, so forth. Okay, that's the moment, Bob, for me. Yeah. Now, I could not believe what I heard because I I know a lot of history. I knew a lot of U.S. stupidity. I had lived through it. Uh, But I thought this can't be right. So I spent basically the next 18 months doing anything I could try to do to mobilize some kind of positive response and support for a democratic, peaceful market reform in Russia. And Washington was absolutely without a response. And I had just gone through this with Poland with completely the opposite uh, results. And I did not understand truly the geopolitics. Well, do, you, do, you be, under, do you understand them now? Now, first of all, this was the, the, the first Bush administration still. This, this is, was the end of the Bush administration. And then the same thing happened in the first year of the Clinton administration. What was the These, source of resistance ideological? I mean, you wouldn't expect a lot of a ton of ideological continuity between the two. I mean, although, of course, the U.S. foreign policy establishment tends to be uh, a more or less constant yeah, thing. But, but you know, this is- it, it's a, it, it is a deep thing. Uh, this is a, a truth. It's, it's a deep thing. It's not dependent so much on who's president. In fact, you sometimes wonder if the presidents really have much role in it at all. But is this but like they, fiscal conservatism? No, uh, what, no, no. What, is, what is going on? No, what's going on is that the United States already decided now we're going to be the sole superpower of the world. And Russia is going to basically just have to uh, just have to be cut down to size. But we're certainly not going to take any heroic measures to, you know, sustain Russia as a viable potential threat to us. Uh, and so Russia is an enemy still uh, now, or a threat. It's a competitor. Don't you think if you had asked the uh, first George Bush, if you had asked Bill Clinton, they would have said, and, and I think meant it. We want to integrate Russia into the West. 
I mean, it was still the Soviet Union. Yes, that's for a while. correct. Then it became we want a, to integrate. We want right. to integrate them into a U.S.-led system. Mm -hmm. That's it. And, and, but it seems to me to fail to appreciate the delicacy of the challenge actually entailed in, in integrating uh, uh, Russia into the West um, is really malpractice. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it, it was a big challenge. I mean, it's like this, you're taking a command economy, a, a formerly totalitarian system. You've got all these kind of, you might say psychological issues. They're, they're adjusting to suddenly not being considered uh, one of the world's two superpowers. Uh, you would ideally like them to move in a democratic direction. I don't think that's truly a prerequisite for world peace, as some people do, but, but you like it. I mean, there's a lot going on there. It just seems to me hard to imagine that they didn't say, we need some like task forces. We need the world's greatest minds figuring out how we're going to accomplish this. They just yeah, thought it would happen naturally. And they didn't. They didn't, period. Uh, the, the idea started in 1992. Uh, under Bush one, uh, with Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Cheney, that this is now the time for the U.S. to lead the world to be the global hegemon. That was the idea. For Clinton, the idea was, I don't know what. Presidents don't understand much anyway in the first year or two of, uh, of their administrations, and Clinton was certainly uh, like that. But they said no heroics, you know, it's domestic politics anyway, no heroics. Uh, and so, no, nothing of a big, ambitious uh, scale was done. That was what I believed in because I knew enough of history of, I knew a lot of history, I have to say, of the end of World War I and the disasters that ensued and the end of World War II and the constructive approach that had ensued. And I wanted this to be a constructive uh, approach, but the U.S. already had decided in 1992, this is going to be a U.S.-led world. We're going to start expanding NATO. Russia is, you know, going to be a big mm -hmm. player. We just have to make sure the nukes don't go off. But other than that, we don't have to pay too much attention. And of course, they had no conception of how China was going to rise during this period. But what I would say in brief is that from 1992 until today, the U.S. Uh, grand strategy has been to be the top dog with no rival. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a ridiculous idea compared to the idea of a decent world that cooperates uh, and that uh, tries to overcome poverty and that faces climate change and so forth. The U.S. grand strategy is not about ending climate change. It's not about economic development. It's not about ending poverty. Uh, it's not about peace. The U.S. grand strategy is that the United States needs to be the predominant country in the world, period. And we have two rivals in this vision. One is the big one, China, and the other one is what they think of as a kind of sideshow, but it's not quite a sideshow. Uh, it's uh, 11 time zones, and it's a country with uh, uh, 1,000 
700 deployed nuclear weapons and we're at war with it. That's Russia. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. view is, no, this is the U.S. world. And that is in both parties. In the Republican Party, it was the Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz world. In the Democratic Party, uh, it's it's been the Democratic Party neocons. By the way, Victoria Nuland, our undersecretary of State, Lincoln, Jake Sullivan, and Biden. They've been part of that all along. Uh, are you are you saying they all deserve the label? This is a technical issue, neocon, or you're just saying that yeah, it's 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 more or less the same foreign policy, whatever you call it. A little bit of both. But you know, when I say it, uh, people are shocked. Uh, Jeff, what are you talking about? How could you call Biden a neocon? The congressman just basically took my head off a little bit for saying that. But the fact of the matter is, look, Biden, Newland, and Sullivan were part of the overthrow of the Ukrainian president in 2014 that really started this war uh, in its, uh, in, in, in its uh, uh, violent phase. So, yes, they've been part of the idea that what's really at stake is a U.S.-led world. For me, it doesn't compute. What's really at stake, in my view, is a cooperative world operating under the U.N. Charter and taking steps to end poverty and fight climate change and other environmental disasters. But it's a very different view. Basically, most of Washington is organized around the U.S. must-lead view Mm -hmm. And, it, and it's it's out of date. It's anachronistic. It was wrong in 1992. It's wildly out of date today because it's no longer even based on a U.S. economic or technological predominance, given China's rise. So yeah. it gets more and more dangerous every day because it's completely out of sync with the with ground reality. Yeah. Well, your reference to the U.N. Charter is, is what I had in mind when I said there there was hope of uh, international law. Uh, maybe actually being respected. I was thinking in particular the you know the ban on transborder aggression and in, in, in the charter. But on the on the issue of where the impetus for this foreign policy comes from, let me challenge you a little in the sense that, as you know, in the '90s there were leading lights of the foreign policy establishment who said NATO expansion is a terrible idea. So so you know and cl- yet. Clinton did it. Now, one thing I've heard is that as the 96 election approached, he very much wanted to nail down uh, some votes from people of Eastern European descent in the Midwest, whatever. I've heard, you know, knowledgeable people say that. But that that was a moment when there wasn't, there, there certainly wasn't consensus in the foreign policy establishment for NATO expansion. And yet it happened. I agree with you. Uh, it was a mistake. Uh and in general, one, you know, one could go through and point to ways domestic, specific domestic issues have warped U.S. foreign policy. But anyway, you you hold to the view that in the, you know, quote, deep state, I mean, maybe maybe you want to avoid that phrase. Actually, I'd probably advise you to avoid it. Uh, but but um, you know what I mean? You, you, yes. you go it, ahead. actually, you know, it it, it is. Uh, a, a historian uh, that I, I can't name because he hasn't come out with this yet was telling me uh, recently that in his archival work, he has uncovered 
documents already in 1992 with the list of countries uh, to which NATO will expand, including Ukraine, 1992. And uh, I'm uh, trying to find uh, uh, right now, if I can, while we talk, uh, an article by, oh yes, this is fascinating, an article by Brzezinski in 1997 in Foreign mm -hmm. Affairs mm -hmm. magazine uh, let me just read a, a little bit of it quickly. Accordingly, NATO and EU enlargement should move forward in deliberate stages, assuming a sustained American and Western European commitment. Here is a speculative but realistic timetable. By 1999, the first three Central European members will have been admitted into NATO. By 2003, the EU is likely to have initiated accession talks with all three Baltic republics, and NATO will likewise have moved forward on their membership as well as that of Romania and Bulgaria, with their accession likely to be completed before 2005. Between 2005 and 2010, Ukraine, provided it has made significant domestic reforms and has been identified as Central European countries, should also be ready for initial negotiations with the EU and NATO. Well, Bob, that's exactly the timetable. That's not a casual uh, mm. paragraph. Yeah. That is actually officialdom giving us a little bit behind the curtain of what the plans are. Now, that's Brzezinski in 97. He's 97. no longer in power. No, he's no longer in power, but he's okay. presenting at Foreign mm. Affairs magazine, which is, you know, the magazine for, sure. uh, for, okay, for, for the okay. New York Council on Foreign yeah. Relations people. And, and my point is this, <laughs> this is really a long-term strategy. Uh, it's mm. Clinton, yeah, he, he went along with it, but it was presented to him, no mm -hmm. doubt. Uh, and uh, it, it was, and by the way, Bill Perry, like you said, his defense secretary almost resigned over it. He thought it was horrible. George Kennan said, this is the biggest mistake of our generation, uh, but it's a deep plan. And, it's, and it was set in motion, and it's still in motion to this day, even though it has led us to war. Mm. That's amazing. Not only has it led us to war, but while we're talking about it on your podcast, the New York Times won't talk about it, the Washington Post won't talk about it, the Wall Street Journal won't talk about it, MSNBC won't talk about it. Nobody will talk about it in the mainstream media. Yeah, yeah. Uh let me just quickly say, once, one thing I had heard is that during the Bush one administration, voices of reason like Brent Scowcroft actually beat back the neocons on the NATO expansion issue, but ultimately uh, the neocons uh, prevailed. There was some continuity of personnel and, and, and so on. Of course, Brzezinski, not a neocon really, but he has his own issues with Russia, God knows. The, the, um, on the, you mentioned the media. Is it my It's interesting, just in terms of continuity, they consider Victoria Newland. She's our Undersecretary of State for Political mm. Affairs. She was in the Cheney. Exactly. <laughs> she was a Cheney National Security Advisor. Then mm -hmm. she was the NATO, U.S. Ambassador to NATO under mm -hmm. Bush. Mm -hmm. Then she was the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and her her, you know, uh, call was intercepted as she planned the uh, post Yanukovych government because she was deeply involved in the overthrow of Yanukovych. Now she is under secretary of state and she's married to the, you know, the, the leading uh, Kagan. author uh, ideologue of 
liberal hegemony, as he calls it, uh, Robert Kagan. So that's continuity, by the way. That is yeah. literal continuity of one person yeah. across both parties going back now uh, almost 20 years. Quick 30-second anecdote. When, when the Obama administration brought her on, I was running a blog at the point uh, called The Progressive Realist, and we ran an item saying, wait, what's going on? She's like a neocon. She was, she was plotting with Cheney, and Obama is bringing her on board. We were pilloried across the foreign policy establishment. Left, right. How dare you, you know, uh, question, you know, like, what? Just because she's married to Bob Kagan? Well, no, it was deeper than that. But the point is, everyone in the blob rallies round everyone else in the blob. And, That's uh, it. This is deep. <laughs> this is really deep. And it's, uh, and, it, and it's got a lot of continuity. And the continuity now is extremely dangerous because it's so anachronistic. We don't understand to this moment that we think we're leading the world parade. But 80% of the world saying, huh, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who are you to lead the world parade? We've got, yes, the U.S., Canada, Britain, European Union, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. That's our list. Okay, that's a list that is uh, uh, oh, 15 to 20% of the world population. And the rest of the world, like President Lula, who was just in China, uh, and uh, the Saudis and you name it, because they were just in, uh, with China also, and China just uh, brokered a peace between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. The rest of uh, India, the rest of the world saying, no, the U.S. isn't our leader, but we'd like to get along with you. And mm -hmm. that's where we have this basic discontinuity right now. And we keep pushing NATO and it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I know you've got a hard out, as they say in the business, like right now. So if you don't have time to answer this, uh, just don't or, or, or give it a one word answer. But is it my imagination or you mentioned the media? Has the media actually gotten worse in some sense? I mean, it always without had. question. Well, and what how would you characterize that? And without why? question. So what, and by the way, I, I will tell you, uh, when Nord Stream was blown up, I had a a. Uh, uh, a chat with a longtime friend and actually a classmate of mine from Harvard from decades ago, uh, who was a senior reporter in one of the most important newspapers. I said, you know what? I think the U.S. did it. And he said, of course the U.S. did it. Who else? And I said, mm, maybe your paper could mention something like that. It just today said the Russians did it. He said, oh, come on. Jeff, come on. I said, are you kidding? Could we have a serious discussion of this? And he said to me, you know, the editor's not so interested in that. And I said, this is a friend from decades. I said, you know, when I was young, I turned to your newspaper because of Watergate, because of the Pentagon Papers, and I loved it. And he said to me, that paper is so dead and gone, Jeff, you have to understand that. And I cannot imagine, you know, this is a really talented guy, uh, lead 
columnist, lead, uh, lead journalist, I should say. Um, and he's telling me the paper that I loved is dead and gone. If you ask me why, I really cannot figure it out why a paper doesn't want to beat the government over the head when it tells ridiculous stories like Nord Stream was, was, was uh, blown up by six people on a boat like they tried for one day. Okay, come on. This, is, <laughs> this was put out by serious media because it was almost a joke from the intelligence agency. Why these media are so in line with official narratives I don't fully understand. I, I know all the theories, money, advertising, power, many other things. But the truth is it's dreadful compared to what it was 40 years ago. Dreadful. And it's gotten a lot worse. Yeah, I think there are a few factors. But, but I do think the actual conception of a journalist's mission, what the journalist's conception of their mission is, has in some cases, not all, but actually changed. Uh, and, uh, when, when I was young, which is a long time ago, uh, we knew the government lied nonstop. And the idea of journalism was pick out the lies. You know, that was, uh, fun, uh, that, that, uh, and not fun only <laughs> crucial, like the Pentagon papers in the Vietnam war, like Watergate. And now you don't get any sense of that because if you're, Somewhat experienced, uh, and uh, also I'm lucky to have daily conversations with uh, a lot of people who are in the know because of their responsibilities. So I know a lot of what goes on day to day. I don't see any will in the mainstream media to start from the basic proposition that, okay, politicians lie, that's their job, but our job is to, is to tell the truth. That, to me, is a great division of labor. I'm not even expecting politicians to stop lying. I'm just expecting the media not just to parrot the lies. Yeah. No, it, it was, uh, I'm glad to hear it's not just my imagination. <laughs> Things actually are going to hell. Um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be glad about that. But listen, I know uh, you got to go, Jeff. Thanks so much. Yeah. Is, is there a what place a pleasure. People, people should go to see your stuff or just, just Google your uh, name? Yeah, Jeff, jeffsacks.org is where I post all my articles and op-eds and so on so okay. they can find, find that there. And can we do this again before another 34 years? Let's do. Let's shoot for 17. Okay, why don't we? No, even, I hope, even I hope sooner. much sooner. I'll bug you about okay. it. Thanks, Jeff. Very good. All right, great to be with you. Thanks Take a care. lot. Bye-bye. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this conversation. If you liked it, I hope you'll hit the YouTube like button or give the Non-Zero Podcast a nice review at the Apple Podcast site or on the podcast app of your choice. And I hope you'll consider subscribing to the Non-Zero newsletter at Substack. The basic subscription is free, though you can become a paid subscriber if you want to get access to all the bonus content. or if you just think the work we're doing at Non-Zero is worth supporting.